Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Everything was moving so fast and was really scary and no one was telling me anything and no one was showing me anything and just feeling like my body had failed me. And, uh, I felt like I didn't matter and my husband didn't matter. And it was just this late night thing that everyone was forced to do and kind of resentful about. And I think that part of that resentment stems back to the fact that I was this home birth mom gone wrong. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. Last summer, we brought you a mini-series about the heartbreak and trauma of infertility. We began the series by talking about our own experience with a miscarriage. And we talked to other people who'd gone through similar struggles. I have had four miscarriages, and no one knows that. You know, there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's this thing that no one knows. There's a mourning of what could have been, what you imagined was going to be. There have been people that I have told since who didn't know that we were pregnant. And the more I think about it, the more I think that it is me trying to have some semblance of control, either about my story or just needing to share it with people who I'm close with because I didn't get the experience that I should have had. Sharing our experience and listening to others showed us that however lonely our labyrinth had felt, we weren't alone. The same thing happened when I spoke about the intense anxiety that I found myself battling when I was pregnant with Eureka. It helped to be able to talk about it openly and honestly, instead of pretending my pregnancy was perfect. But it turns out, we were missing a piece of the puzzle. We talked about the journey to get pregnant and the pregnancy itself, but we didn't address the last crucial element. What happens after your baby is born? To finally answer that question, we talked to someone who knows intimately how traumatic the fourth trimester can be. My name is Amy Kuber. I am from Berthoud, Colorado. I'm a registered nurse. I practiced in the hospital for about 20 years, background in pediatric ICU, critical care, uh, emergency. Amy is also the founder of Mountain Marsupial, a company that makes baby carriers and jackets that can accommodate a strapped-on baby. I wanted to go outside, and especially when you have your second baby or your third baby, getting outside and not being stressed about it is really hard. And so I wanted to find a way where I could make sure that my baby was warm and that I didn't have to worry about cold fingers and toes. And so I made the jacket and I was like, Amanda lives in the Pacific Northwest. That girl needs baby wearing jacket. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. It's totally true. I've worn it many a time over the winter and it was super helpful. Good. Like a lot of moms, Amy wears more than one hat. But to hear her full story, we need to go back in time back to when Amy was about to become a mom for the first time. When my husband Chris and I got married, I was like, we're having babies right away because I'm, you know, 36 and my ovaries are turning into raisins and like, we got to get this party started. And I thought that it was going to be really hard for me to get pregnant. And so when I didn't have fertility issues and then I had this beautiful pregnancy and I felt great and it was like that whole Madonna 
thing where you just feel like <laughs> this vessel of glory. And, you know, I just, <laughs> I felt gorgeous and I just was happy. And I had actually planned on having a home birth, mm. which I think is really counterintuitive for a lot of people being a registered nurse and having a medical background. And I'm all about the science and I'm all about, you know, you do the interventions when you need to for the right reasons. And I've seen a lot of crazy stuff in my career. So I'm a big fan of modern technology and medicine because I see what it can do. But I also felt like, man, we've been doing this for a million years. You know, our bodies are perfectly designed to handle this experience. And so I had built up this expectation in my mind that I was going to labor at home and I wasn't going to be medicated and it was just going to be this beautiful experience. And I spent most of my pregnancy really fiercely defending this thing that I wanted to do. I was working in an emergency department at the time and when I would talk to coworkers and such about it, they said, you can't do that. I mean, what if you kill your baby? <laughs> you know, and I thought, there's so much stuff that goes on in hospitals now. We've been delivering babies in hospitals for 150-plus years now, and the mortality rates aren't necessarily that different. And don't get me wrong, I've seen plenty of situations where it's very, very appropriate to have medical intervention for birth, and I don't judge anybody for coming to that conclusion. But for my personal experience— I really felt like this is what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm going to do it. But I'm not doing it alone. Certified nurse midwives were five minutes away from the hospital. I had my backup plan and all of the resources in place, but I had to really reassure him. My father-in-law, he and my mother-in-law, bless him, they were so scared about the home birth. We had actually gone out to dinner with them, and when I was in the bathroom, they took my husband aside and they said, if there's any way that you can talk her out of this home birth thing, we really, really want you to try. And what did your husband say? Um, I don't know, because he didn't say anything to me about it, because he <laughs> knew that I wasn't taking no for an answer. I think he just reassured them that everything would be okay and we would make the right moves. The day after that conversation with her in-laws, Amy went into labor. At first, things seemed to be going well. When I started having contractions, they were immediately very regular and less than five minutes apart. My body went from zero to 60, which I thought was very encouraging. But after a while there were some worrying signs. You know, I wasn't progressing. When my midwife checked me, she had this weird look on her face, and I was like, oh my God, what's wrong? All of my confidence and all of this idealism that I had about it just went out the window. The pain was becoming unbearable. I was completely exhausted because I hadn't slept all night. And so I said, I just feel like I need to get some rest and reevaluate the situation. The night dragged on. After 19 hours, she made the difficult decision to go to a hospital. Making that choice to go to the hospital and sort of give up was devastating. Like I was embarrassed because my body was failing me and I was angry. And then I felt stupid because I had been so fiercely defending my position to have a home birth to friends and family and colleagues. And then when I got there, there definitely was this vibe that oh, well, this mom thinks she could have a home birth, and now she's coming to us for help. I didn't feel like they were very caring and didn't treat me well. Hmm. It was like an extra humiliation on top of yeah. everything else. Yeah, because it was sort of like, uh-huh, see, we told you so. And as soon as we got to the hospital, they put me on the monitor, and they wouldn't tell me this, but 
baby's heart rate was dipping. Oof. As it turned out, Amy's labor had stalled because her daughter was in brow presentation, a potentially dangerous complication where the widest part of the baby's head is coming through the birth canal. She was stuck. And so I never dilated past two centimeters because part of what causes cervical dilation is direct contact pressure from the top of the baby's head. And so I never had that mechanism in the delivery to make that process happen. The truth of the matter is, and it took me a really long time to come to terms with this, is that had I not gone into the hospital for care, I think, you know, in another world or another century, we both probably would have died. Amy labored for eight more hours in the hospital before she had to go in for an emergency C-section. But the hospital staff did not get any more accommodating. I had a birth plan that was like my backup plan for if we ended up in the hospital. And I had this list of things that I want and I didn't want and that I hoped for. And I felt like they got a hold of that list and systematically went down and checked every single thing on the list saying, oh, nope, we're not going to do that. Oh, nope, we're not going to do that either. Like what kinds of things? Well, the biggest thing, Chris and I had agreed that we weren't going to find out the gender of the baby ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And my promise to him was that if he would let me have this moment, because he really wanted to know, at the moment of birth, that he would be the one to announce the gender of the baby. I wanted it to be his voice. And it was this special thing that we had planned, and it was something very intimate between us. So when I was in the operating room, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and the world is whirling around me, and I'm, I'm just laying on this cold, hard operating table saying, please don't tell me the sex of the baby. Please don't tell me the sex of the baby. I promised my husband he could tell me the sex of the baby. And I just kept saying it over and over and over and over again. And people were like, okay, yeah, okay, sure, Amy, yeah, no problem. We can do that. And then as things were happening, I hear a voice say, 259, girl. The first words out of my mouth after my daughter was born was, oh, God damn it. And it wasn't because it was a girl. It was because that moment was taken away. And later I found out that it was the first assistant to the obstetrician, and she wasn't in the room when I was saying it over and over and over and over and over again. And no one thought to pass that information along to her. And so I guess it necessarily wasn't her fault, but I just felt really abandoned in that moment when I had all these caregivers around me and no one cared enough to let anybody know about that. So that was just one more thing in the series of devastating events. After Amy's emergency C-section, she got to see her baby girl for the first time. When they brought her to me and they brought over this blanket wrapped up little cute peanut pink face. And I remember just feeling so numb and detached from everything that was happening. And I thought to myself, well, that's a cute little girl, cute little baby. I wonder where her parents are. I felt like I didn't have a right to her because I didn't give birth to her, even though I did. But it was this mechanical procedure, and I just felt like I wasn't part of it. And so everything that I had dreamed about was just completely shattered. And I was having such a bad postpartum experience. They weren't medicating me for my pain. You know, I had major abdominal surgery, 
And when I told the nurse that my pain was a 7 out of 10, she looked at me and she said, well, you don't look like a 7. And, you know, I wanted to do skin to skin with my daughter because her temperature was a little low. And they told me that, oh, well, you have to get up and walk now. And I said, well, I'll get up and walk after I warm her up. They were like, well, you need to do it now. I said, well, then I'll have, you know, I'll, I'll hold her until my husband gets back and then he can do skin to skin with her and then I'll get up and walk. And they said, oh, well, daddies don't have the ability to thermoregulate like moms do. And I knew it was all misinformation and it was all lies and I felt so manipulated and so just bullied in the whole situation. When we got home, it was just this numb haze. I still felt like I don't feel like this baby is really mine or that I have a right to her. And I didn't kiss her until she was about a week old. Because working as a nurse in situations where you're taking care of other people's babies, you're loving and, and soothing to them. But, you know, you don't There's a line. kiss other people's babies. Yeah. It just felt weird to me. And, and I kept waiting for the doorbell to ring for somebody to come and say, well, thanks for taking care of her. We'll take her back now. So I just had this really weird detachment. I wanted her to be mine so bad, but I just didn't feel like I had the right to it. So it just took a lot of time, and I finally just said, I have to do this for her sake. I have to make sure that she knows how much I love her. And, and so I really had to push myself to figure out I can kiss her, and she is mine. Hmm. Um, it was post-traumatic stress disorder and postpartum depression. And I finally told my husband, I have to do something about this. I have to get some help. I have to figure something out because I cannot function like this forever. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. So I went looking for a therapist. And I called a group and said, do you have someone who specializes in postpartum depression? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. So-and-so just got back from maternity leave. We'll hook you up with her. And so I ended up going and seeing this woman who had had a perfectly normal, healthy pregnancy and delivery the second time that I went to go see her. She said, Amy, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do for you. At least you had a healthy baby. I think you need to get a self-help book, and you really just need to get over it. <laughs> wow. And then that backed me into this corner of, oh, my God, not only is this happening to me, but nobody will listen to me. Nobody gives a shit. And I felt so just lonely. And, and and then it brought up that whole thing. Well, you know, I don't I don't have a right to this baby, but I have this baby, but now I don't have a right to feel the way that I feel because at least I had a happy baby. And then time went by. And then I found another therapist and I worked up a rapport with her and six to eight weeks into it, she revealed to me that she had had a stillbirth. Oh. I'm glad that she 
shared that with me, but I wish that she would have shared that with me on day one. And again, I felt like I don't have a right to feel traumatized by my birth experience because at least my baby didn't die. While she was still dealing with the trauma of giving birth the first time, Amy got pregnant again. I had an ultrasound at 40 weeks. And so they told me that Will was intrauterine growth restricted and would be very small and his little body couldn't handle the stress of labor. And the way that they did it was they did the ultrasound. They put my husband and I in a room and then the doctor walked in, slammed my chart on the counter and said, looks like we need to have a birthday or this baby's going to die. What hospital are you going? <laughs> what is, well, what is and this? what's crazy is that this is two different hospitals. Terrible, terrible patient care issues. And so my husband pretty much hits the floor. He said, well, if this is such a big deal, like we should go to the operating room right now. Yeah, you're 40 weeks. And I was like, I don't want to go to the operating room. I want to try to have a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth after cesarean is what right. it stands for. But it was just off the table because as much as I wanted to fight for it, and I wanted it so badly to have a different delivery experience, I didn't have his support and telling me that my baby was going to die. It just, you know, it takes all the wind out of your sails. And you're just like, I just don't have the energy to fight this. And then if something did go wrong, then it would be all my fault for making this decision to not go through with elective surgical procedure. Right. So I ended up having a repeat C-section, and it was better because it was more controlled. And I got to do skin-to-skin in the operating room with my son, and they put him on my chest, and he's, like, trying to suck on my chin, and it was a really sweet moment. But I still was laying there, and they said, how are you doing? You need anything? And I said, while you're down there, I think you should just tattoo the word failure across my incision. And um, it, there was, like, silence, no response. I, nobody wanted to address it. And so I thought, I don't even know if I said that out loud. I guess I'll just keep that to myself. And then when we got into the recovery room next door, the nurses were doing the weights and measurements and the eyes and thighs and all the stuff they do for new baby. And one nurse turned to the other and said, he's AGA. Average for gestational age. He was not intrauterine growth restricted. He was six pounds, eight ounces, full term, healthy baby. And I'm laying there in the recovery room going, fuck. As a nurse, I thought this was so crazy that I didn't know this. The further along you are in your pregnancy, the less accurate an ultrasound is. They can be off by more than a pound again misinformation and lack of support. And I was deprived of that birth experience. And so that was like a whole nother spin out of control. After her second child was born, Amy saw a new therapist who recommended EMDR therapy. This is, you know, what they do for soldiers who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was really, really difficult what she did for me was I had a buzzer in each hand, just a vibration. And they would alternatively buzz right to left, right to left, just consistently, rhythmically, while she had me retell the birth story 
over and over and over again through several weeks of therapy sessions. And the way that she explained it to me, you're stimulating the thinking, reasoning part of your brain as you're reliving this memory that's stored in the lizard survival part of your brain. And so as you're telling the story down here, your brain activated and stimulated that it sort of brings that memory up Hmm. into the thinking reasoning part so that you can think about it and deal with it and process Process it it. with a way that you can't when it's down in your lizard brain and you're just in survival mode. Got ya. And it was life-changing. I mean, I can sit here and talk to you about this without blubbering into uncontrollable sobbing tears. And I'm really, really grateful that that was available. But it took me years to get to that point. And, you know, I didn't want to burden my friends with it. And I have this very dear friend who had the most amazing birth story, complete with helicopters and catching flights and running through airport terminals and (laughs) taxi cabs and her husband arriving as she's put on her cowboy boots in stirrups. So she has this cute picture and has like this perfectly gorgeous, easy delivery, you know, and she tells me this story, not knowing where I'm at with my birth experience. And, you know, I walk out around the back of her house and just sit down in the dirt and just cry and cry and cry and cry and cry because I didn't want to take that moment away from her. Nobody either knows about it or talks about it or acknowledges that this is a real thing for moms. Hmm. It's interesting because it feels like I had a little bit of the opposite experience from you, where I had a much more difficult pregnancy than I anticipated. Leading into my own birth, I was constantly obsessed with the idea that I was going to die in childbirth. Um, I was dealing with some interpersonal stuff, and I was just like high stress, high anxiety, feeling really, really scared about the entire experience. And... I also had precipitous labor. It went from like zero to 60 very quickly, but I made it to the hospital. And when I was there, everything went smoothly. My baby arrived. It was five pushes and she was out. I got to have that skin contact. My husband got to say, it's a girl. Like all of those things that like, I'm so I'm so sad that you didn't get that um, because it's it means a lot. And it's like once in a lifetime experience becoming a mom for the first time. But the thing that happened to me was my daughter, she came out beautiful, screaming her head off as you would if you had just been pushed through a birth canal. They laid her on me and my husband noticed that there was something on her skin, some bumps Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. And he was like, oh, that's weird. And he's like, nurse, can you take a look at that? And the nurse is like, oh, no, no, it's just all the fluids that are on her that I'll just wash right off. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And so I didn't worry about it. He didn't worry about it, except that it didn't wash off. She had some weird skin condition that we didn't know what it was. And we go into the postpartum room And um, they stitched me up and I'm hanging out and baby's great. She latches wonderfully, like everything's going great. 
But the pediatrician comes in, checks her out, takes a closer look at the skin thing that she has, and gets this very, very serious look on her face and tells us that our daughter very likely has a very, very, very serious condition that manifests in the skin but can result in things as serious as blindness, seizures, and even missing parts of the brain. So they're like, we need to get your not-even-a-day-old baby into an MRI right now. And so, like, I had this moment of, like, everything, like, I'm alive and my baby's okay and we're all great and everything was wonderful to, like, sudden sinking terror, dread, fear, oh, my God, oh, my God, what do I do? And, you know, like, we were in the hospital for days because— it was EEGs and MRIs and people coming in to put those like clockwork orange things on her eyes so they can see if her retinas are attached and just test after test after test. Thankfully, the staff who were working with us were incredibly good and incredibly kind and incredibly supportive and like constantly checking in with us and constantly letting us know that, okay, they're poking at the doctor over here. The neurologist is going to come and we're going to make sure that he doesn't miss you and all that. So we had great support from the staff. But we walked away from the hospital not knowing if our daughter would ever speak, if she would ever walk, if she would ever recognize us, Mm. if she was going to be a vegetable. And so, like, the first month of of my motherhood was crying every day. Every day. Not knowing. Mm-hmm. I was really hesitant to ever talk about this because I didn't know what was going on with my daughter. And the thing I can say today is that after months of tests and tests and tests and genetic tests and all of that, there's nothing wrong with her. They don't know what her skin condition was. It's disappearing anyway. Um, she's tested genetically perfect, all of that. But the first months of motherhood for me was this trying to balance the feeling of joy and love and connection with the feeling of utter dread and despair and uncertainty. And it's so interesting how we build up in our minds the idea of what something so important to us is going to feel like. And until it happens, you don't actually really, really know what it's going to feel like. And I remember having moments when I was breastfeeding and sobbing at the same time, and my mom, who was here a lot to support me in those early weeks, she told me to stop. She told me to stop crying because I was going to, like, hurt the baby. Like, she was like, the baby's going to know that you're sad and you need to stop being sad for your baby because it's going to hurt your baby. And I was like, I can't stop being sad a part of me like is like yes i know and another part of me is like how insane is that how come my feelings don't matter anymore as soon as the baby comes out it's like whatever's happening with the mom is like a secondary thing people treat it like that's the only thing that matters is what's going on with the baby is the baby alive does the baby even know that you're sad if the baby knows you're sad then it's the end of the world 
And like, a, how dare you be sad in front of your baby because you're going to screw her up and, mm-hmm. you know, all that guilt and that feeling like you don't have a right to feel the way that you feel about the situation. You know, you said something in one of your podcast episodes. It wasn't even about your birth story, but you said um, people would tell you that they have no idea how you felt. And as a pediatric ICU nurse for years and years and years before I had children, I used to tell parents that all the time. I can't imagine how you must be feeling right now. I do not have this relationship with another human being. Mm -hmm. But you said, imagine your worst day, whatever your trauma is or your tragedy. It doesn't have to be the same as what I'm going through or my thing exactly. But if you can picture your worst, worst moment and know how you felt in that moment, you really can empathize with someone and say, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through. And I thought that was so interesting because I always felt, you know, you were either negating someone's feelings or just kind of brushing them off. Oh, I know how you feel. You know, you feel really brushed off. But if you can put it in that perspective, my worst day and your worst day, yours isn't any less worse than mine. And I feel like there's something really valuable to take away from that as people and as moms, just being able to be there for someone. Hmm. You know, when you're talking about going through all of this stuff with your daughter and all the treatment and all the not knowing and the testing and the wondering and the waiting and the fear and the, I'm sure your mind goes a thousand different directions thinking about all of the different possible worst case scenarios. And I feel like I really do think I know how you feel as a nurse who's been with parents who are going through those kinds of experiences. And I think that that's maybe a good takeaway that just because we don't live the same lives doesn't mean that we can't have compassion Hmm. for each other and also feel like it's okay to talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to bother you with my story because maybe you think it's trivial. That doesn't have to be that way. Right. You know, we should lean on each other and support each other and just listen Mm -hmm. and be available. When I was pregnant with my third, I didn't tell my husband I was pregnant until I was 16 weeks. Chris was doing training for his job, and the training period is very intense and very stressful. And if he wasn't successful with the training, there was a possibility that he would have had to relocate to another city, quite possibly out of state. Big deal. Yeah. So we had put in an offer on our house, and we delayed the closing date until after he was finished with training. And then he's a government employee and then the furlough, so they shut everything down, so they canceled training. And so he was backed up even further. So then he was under this panic, we have to close on this house and I'm furloughed, so I'm not getting an income right now. And he was just under this tremendous amount of pressure. And the day that he actually finally got to start his delayed training, I took a pregnancy test and I was like, holy shit. I was super excited. And he comes home from his first day of training, and he 
says to me, oh my gosh, this is difficult. I'm so stressed out. It's so overwhelming. It's hard. Like, I'm really worried. What if it doesn't work out and we have to move in the house and all of these things? And he's just spiraling. And I say, how can I help you? What can I do? How can I support you? And he says, don't do anything to stress me out. (laughs) That was all he said. And I was like, Okay, so I feel like maybe telling him that we're going to have another mouth to feed is maybe not the right thing right now. So since I was 40, and we had talked about this after my second delivery about how we would want to do things differently as far as intervention and monitoring and stuff like that, because a lot of the monitoring that I had with my second baby was unnecessary because he was perfectly healthy, average, gestational age baby. So what I did is I... I got, uh, it's called a CVS, and it's similar to an amniocentesis. Okay. So I had that done. I was like, we're going to make sure that there's no genetic anomalies or any of those kinds of things that we need to worry about because I am an older mom. And then I'll do a 20-week ultrasound to make sure that baby has four chambers in the heart and has an intact diaphragm and the guts are on the inside. And everything came back normal. And, And so... You know, weeks and weeks go by, and my husband comes home from work on his last day of training, and he's just elated and relieved. And he says, I'm so happy. I'm going to go out and have drinks with the boys. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, go have drinks with the boys. And so he goes and he celebrates. And then the next day, he sits down on the couch and reaches for the remote control. And I say, no, 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 no. We need to talk. And uh, he looks worried, and he says, what's going on? said, I have something to tell you, and it's really, really a big thing to tell you, and I'm really worried that you're going to be upset with me because it's a big thing, and I have been keeping this from you. <laughs> and his, he's just, like, pale and just completely like, what the hell are you about to tell me? Yeah. And for some reason, he kind of looks at me, and he goes, what? Are you, like, pregnant or something? And I burst into tears, and I'm like, I am, I'm pregnant, and I'm really, really pregnant, like, point of no return. (laughs) And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm already in my second trimester. (laughs) And he starts crying, so then I think he's really upset, but he's just so overjoyed, and so, you know, we're, like, crying, and we're hugging, and and I think it's got to be different this time. I just have to have a better experience this time. And so anyway, I basically told all of my care providers, the ultrasound is normal. The CVS is normal. We're not doing anything else. I'm not doing the fetal monitoring, the st- stress tests. I'm not doing subsequent ultrasounds. You're not doing, we're not doing anything else. And I had a really great obstetrician, but her partners, when I would see them, were not so great. You know, they were like, well, you're 40 and we want to do another ultrasound and make sure, you know, like, what if your fluid levels are low? And so my response is, how do you know what a normal fluid level is? An OB had said to me once, if you get 50 different OBs to look at one ultrasound to measure fluid levels, you'll get 50 different answers. Hmm. And I thought, at what point does some study group stand over a bucket when their water breaks and measure how much amniotic fluid is in there because it goes back to me knowing that further along in pregnancy, the less accurate 
ultrasounds are. And so they said, oh, we're going to, you know, if you don't get an ultrasound and we don't know, I'm going to, I'm on call this weekend. I'm going to worry about you. I'm not going to get any sleep. I know I'm going to get a call (laughs) about you. And I'm like, well, I am going to get plenty of sleep because I'm going to have a baby soon. And I'm not losing sleep worrying about this stuff that you can't definitively tell me is true. Mm. And it for us, it's so frustrating to know that because there's there's so much, like, misinformation and fear-mongering. And, and maybe it's with good intention. Maybe the medical providers are just worried about the baby and, you know— you know, you have two patients to worry about. Right. But I think sometimes it's too much. Mm-hmm. It can be too cautious. When you consent to something like a cesarean, it really, really needs to be informed consent. Right. If you don't even know what right questions to ask, then how do you know if you know everything you need to know? Right. Especially um, if there's not an exact science anyway. So. Right. Right. Exactly. So anyway, when all was said and done, I was able to successfully have an unmedicated VBAC a VBA2C, a vaginal birth after two cesareans. And it was so cathartic. And, you know, I had done a lot of healing through EMDR, but that moment that I was able to have that experience was like, I was just over the moon. But I will also say that he did not breathe. He pooped on me. And then he was still and quiet. And so they scoop him up and they took him over to the warmer and did all the things that the baby nurses do. I remember going over and over in my head, oh, my God, what have I done? What did I do? If something bad happens and it's because we had a vaginal delivery, like, it's all my fault. And it was just like like a, just a heavy weight on me until I heard him take his first breath and cry. And it is just a damn roller coaster. Wow. All this stuff. Yeah. So. Totally is. I mean, you've shared so much and you've done it so eloquently. I think my only final question is to sort of take you back to those first months and even years of grappling with PTSD while also trying to balance your feelings against being there as a mom for your babies who are growing up really quickly and absorbing everything you do and everything about you. You almost talked about being frozen. One of the things that I think is really interesting about PTSD and trauma response is in order to survive, your mind almost disassociates from itself. You sort of just take a step away from yourself, but because your baby is also a part of that experience and a part of you. You are sort of disassociating from your baby, which is why you felt like this baby isn't mine. Or I feel like that was the manifestation of you feeling disassociated because Mm -hmm. you were triggered into a survival instinct. And I'm wondering if you could potentially talk to me about when cracks happened in that ice and what it felt like to have little moments of connection that brought it back to you. Well, I think one of the big factors in all that is time. It's really hard to just allow that time to go by because they grow up so fast. But uh, I can tell you there was one <laughs> there was one moment uh, about two, three o'clock in the morning, and I'm breastfeeding her in the rocking chair that my parents bought for me to rock my baby in. And it was this beautiful, quiet, 
moment of just the two of us, and I was sort of wrapped in this gift from my parents. And she looked up at me while she was nursing, and I knew that she knew who I was and my place in her world. And she reached her little chubby hand up, and she just stroked my cheek. And I just completely lost it. It was like she was letting me know that it was okay mm. and that I was okay and that she was going to be okay. It was like the, the sweetest, best, best moment of my life. Mm. And then I called my mom the next day and I apologized for ever having been an asshole as a teenager. <laughs> I, like, okay. I have had that moment with my mom too. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom. I don't. I know now what I put you through. <laughs> I know how much you love me. You know, yeah. and not to say that that was it. That it was just bam, and then it right. was done. But it, it made me see a little bit of light mm. when I had been in such a dark place for so long. After a while, I wanted to see if there was a way that I could help other women either not go through what. I went through or have a better experience having to go through some of that stuff. I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to shadow a nurse in a planned C-section. And I said, I don't know if I can go into an operating room where they're doing a cesarean birth and not completely lose my shit. I don't want to have the responsibility of another life, but I really want to see how will I respond after everything that I've been through. So she says, okay, so she, I just follow her in and I'm quiet and I'm standing close to the mom because I was behind the drape. I realized in that moment that right where I was at mom's shoulder, I could be the person for this mom that I had really wished that I had had for me in that situation. And so I just started talking to her and she was nervous and kind of wondering what was going on. And I just talked to her and, and I talked to her husband and I said, do you want me to tell you what's going on? Do you want me to tell you stories? Do you want me to distract you? Do you want to hear some jokes? It was like an aha moment because it, after all was said and done and it was a beautiful experience and everyone was joyful and the baby was fine. And, and I thought, I want to do this. I want to be part of this experience and do whatever I can do to make it better. Hmm. And so I ended up taking a job in the nursery at the hospital that I was working at, and I did that for about a year before I decided to stay home with the kids. I have relationships with some of these moms, like, you know, we keep in touch. And that really was healing for me in a way of thinking, like, I went through all of these crazy things that I went through so that I can support someone else going through that experience and being able to say, I know how you feel. Yeah. So that was so cathartic and just satisfying mm. and really, really has healed me mm. on a different level. Yeah. Deep, deep healing. Gosh. So, so now I feel like I have to talk about it. And I think it needs to be put out there. And I don't ever want any anybody else to ever feel the way that I did when I felt like I was completely alone. And there was 
nowhere to turn and no one to talk to because at the end of the day, you are not alone and you absolutely have a right to how you feel. You don't have to compare yourself to anyone else and anyone else's experience. And you don't have to negate what it is you're feeling because of, you know, like, your baby's fine. There's still a lot to it, a lot to it. It's not just about the end product. It's about the journey, too. One of the big takeaways for me from Amy's story is the double-edged sword of hope. It can be a powerful driver to inspire you to reach for what you really want, but it's also the source of expectation and thus frustration when reality inevitably falls short of how you want it to be. And I have to say, hope and expectation have never felt more powerful and more fraught for me than when I think about motherhood and what I want for our daughter as she grows up. Whatever is going to happen, it's probably not what we're expecting, which is scary, but exciting. You can find Amy and her clever baby-carrying gear at mountainmarsupial.com. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And thank you for stepping into the shadow of postpartum depression with us. We hope that in your darkness, you can see the stars. And five of them, perhaps, for a labyrinth review? This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional writing by Sophia Gates and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content. This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Robinson.